Welcome everybody to our second ever podcast of Thursday's Theology. I'm here with uh, our good friend Jake, and uh, it's funny because this podcast episode actually started by accident. Um, we were in between filming sessions, and I asked him a question about Therese of Lisieux, and he just started talking. I was like, wait a second, stop, stop, stop. I want to I sit down and record this. <laughs> so, um, so I'm going to start off by asking the same question I just did, okay. and that is, uh, what caused Therese to become so popular? Because in the in the vlog episode, you mentioned that nobody really knew who she was during her lifetime, right? Because um, she was a cloistered nun, and you know that sort of thing. Yeah. So, so yeah, what what caused her to become so popular? Really, what it was was her autobiography, Story of a Soul. So she she wrote it in, she wrote it in three parts. The first part, uh, as I mentioned in the vlog, was um, her older sister, who was the prioress of her convent, told her to write down her childhood memories. So that's where manuscript A came from. Uh, her other sister, who was in the convent, asked her to write her a letter explaining what the little way was, so that's manuscript B. And then finally, when she was dying, actually, her she was requested to write manuscript C, where she really goes into detail about her life as a nun. Um, it's a beautiful, like, kind of exegesis on charity. Okay. Um, and various other things, her trial of faith, all sorts of things. And they... And she, she knew herself what God was going to do with her and through her and she even there had been talk about publishing what she had written and she said yeah do it because God's going to make use of this Mm -hmm. and she even very very interestingly said be sure you publish it within a year of my death because if you don't Satan will hide it away he'll set traps for it and everything and you see this commonly throughout spiritual literature in the church like louis de montfort's writings were hidden for over 100 years uh mm-hmm. the writings of saint faustina were she actually burned one of her first diaries and then it was you know all sorts of things but thankfully this got out quickly it was actually published a year to the day after her death oh. and it took off like wildfire mm-hmm. just within a few years of her death like it was phenomenal around the catholic world mm-hmm. because um really what it was is just a, a lot of what she does is just perspective changing Hmm. Because it's, um, I feel something I struggle with and something I kind of grew up with is this idea of a very like vengeful, ju- uh, judgmental God. Mm-hmm. But what she she kind of puts she puts it in a different perspective, saying no, God is love, God is mercy, as mm-hmm. you know John says. But seeing how it's really all over Scripture, and seeing how what he's eager to pour out is not judgment and condemnation, but rather his mercy and love, mm-hmm. and that was revolutionary. Mm-hmm. So people just fell in love, and if you read it, it's. It's it, it's easy to read, and she's very poetic, very lyrical. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's she 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 definitely was a romantic. So, yeah, that that is primarily what made her so huge. Yeah. And granted, even though the the first edition was heavily edited, it wasn't until over seventy years after its first publication that the unaltered version really came out. Okay. But. Um, she, she she had given permission for it to be edited. She said to her sister, like, whatever you feel is necessary, change it. And so, what if I'm remembering correctly, her her description of her tri- of her trial of faith was actually removed at the time, mm-hmm. but it was later included, and all of it was later included. And that's pretty much what is what is now known and seen. But it's it to me, what's interesting is seeing how that was appropriate at the time. Because this is late 19th century, early 20th century, um, atheism, Mm -hmm. huge people doubting the church, questioning everything. So then to have this, this little nun saying, 
oh no look check me out now I'm one of the greatest saints and I was a tiny weak little soul mm-hmm. but then later on revealing oh no she equally shared in this trial you know mm-hmm. she herself says this trial of faith that she had was her sharing in the sufferings of atheists mm-hmm. and everything so and eventually they've they published all of her poems all of her plays all of her letters and everything and to me that's been extremely interesting to read her her letters and stuff because y- you do see a different side of her mm-hmm. because in story of a soul she's writing to people who know her extremely well who are very close to her mm. whereas in the letter she's addressing more specific things which can also be good because it's the love and mercy of god is all over it, but you kind of get more specifics of it sometimes right so let me ask you this when mm-hmm. uh you said she was in the 18th century 19th. 19th. Okay, yeah. so the 1800s. Yeah. Okay, from one historian to another, I absolutely hate that they do they do that. Like, the 20th century <laughs> is actually the 1900s. Right. It, it drives me nuts. Anyway, that's that's <laughs> not the point of this question. Um, so, late 1900s. Right. Um, what's interesting is, is that as you were describing Therese's um, kind of outlook of uh, God being merciful and loving, yeah. that speaks exactly to uh, the history of my denomination, too. Mm. Um, so the Evangelical Covenant Church um, came out of the Swedish Lutheran Church, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the predominant views of, of early on was that God was this vengeful, wrathful right. uh, entity. And uh, there's a guy in covenant history named Paul Peter Waldenstrom, mm-hmm. and uh, he was one of the... You cannot study the history of the covenant without coming across him, because mm-hmm. he's just so, such a prolific figure. Right. And uh, he preached a really famous sermon called Be Ye Reconciled Unto God. Mm-hmm. And um, it basically in it, he made two main points. Uh, one, he said that he was walking by some, some uh, pastors one day, mm-hmm. and they said, isn't it great that God is reconciled to us? And he's just like, wait a second, like, that's, <laughs> that's not right, because like it, it, it's a little backwards. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he was, and that's the point he makes in, in his right. sermons. Like, it's not God that needed to be reconciled; it's right. we need to be reconciled to God. Right, right. Um, so that's point one. But point two is he talks about how God's character is not one way before the cross and a different way after. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't go from anger and right. vengeance to love and, and adoration and mercy afterwards. Right. God's character is is consistent throughout. Yeah. And by the mere fact that Jesus is on the cross is the ultimate expression of that love yeah. and mercy. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was just reading the book of Numbers earlier, and I was reading specifically the part where Balaam is trying to, who is it, uh, the, the king who hires him, saying, curse Israel, and mm-hmm. says, all right, I will call upon the Hebrew God. And it literally says, like, the word, so Jesus enters into him and uses his mouth, and he only speaks blessing. And he says, I have not rejected Israel. I do not detest Israel. You know, all, and this yeah. happens three times. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people look at the the God of the Old Testament and say, he's evil, he's vengeful, he's jealous, all these things. But you, you see that and you're like, what? But yeah. because it's yeah. not, it's it's kind of not the, the, the fire and brimstone that you kind of usually expect, especially yeah. in the Pentateuch. Yeah. Of, and I think the, the main reason is, is because we we think that there's two different gods, mm-hmm. one of the Old Testament, one of the New Testament, you know? Very Gnostic. Yeah. Us. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that that's such a, a really detrimental way of thinking because, yeah. again, as historians, we think contextually. Exactly. So we can't divorce the God's character in the New Testament from God's character in the Old. Yeah. You know, it's, it's yeah, it, it's a... 
I mean, I would assume it would be a heresy to say, like, oh, oh, there's one god over here and then another god over here. Oh, it is. Absolutely. I mean, that is that is the heresy of Marcionism. That's the heresy of Gnosticism. Yeah. I mean, God himself says, I'm the same today as I was yesterday and will be forever. Yeah. You know, he, he is unchanging. Yeah. So it's like, okay, if Jesus is preaching this message of love, that's actually one of my favorite things is uh, something Bishop Robert Barron pointed out of you have to read the Bible from the lens of what was basically through the lens of revelation of, mm-hmm. okay, what is communicated in the last book of the Bible? Yeah. So you have to read it all through that lens Yeah. of, okay, what's communicated here? Okay. A God of love and mercy who, and, and what he was using this example for was to, when people talk about, um, in the old Testament, when God says, uh, I think when they're coming to the land of Canaan, he says, slay them all. Do not let any of them live. Yeah. And what he says is basically, this is a command to Israel of you cannot, uh, be tolerant to any sin in your life. Yeah. Because if you do, you haven't fully accepted me as Lord. Yeah. And if you notice, the Israel the Israelites don't slay everybody, they tolerate it. Yeah. And God is like Yeah. You still continue to reject me after all I've done for you. There's a a fantastic book that I read a few years ago and I actually had the, the privilege of meeting the author. Mm-hmm. So uh his his name is uh, Josh Ryan Butler. Mm-hmm. He's a pastor up in Oregon mm-hmm. and um Oregon or Washington. I think it's Oregon. Um, but he, his first book is a book called, uh, the skeletons in God's closet. Mm-hmm. And he talks about, uh, holy war and, uh, the, the stuff in the old Testament that's like, eh, we don't right. really know how to deal with this. Um, but he, he says a similar, similar thing to what you just said. And that is you have to understand that the, the violence in the old Testament, Israel's place in the, among the nations mm-hmm. was different Yeah, because he was saying basically his argument is, um, there is absolutely no reason a band of ex-slaves from Egypt yeah. should have risen to any sort of power. Yeah. So the point is to show that God, that Israel would not have survived unless it had been God fighting with them yeah. and for them, you mm-hmm. know? So he basically says that we we kind of see this thing as God kind of wreaking vengeance and havoc upon the nations of the world. Where right. The, we have to understand that it was for the protection of Israel mm-hmm. um, and the... Mm-hmm the growing and flourishing of Israel. Right. Um, so that's a, that's a really interesting point about the, you know, not tolerating any sin in your life. Cause I think what com- comes back to mind too is, um, when Saul is instructed, okay, mm-hmm. go defeat them, but yeah. don't take any plunder. Takes captives. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you take captives and plunder. So it's, it's, it's really interesting to see that, you know, you, you disobey God's direct order mm-hmm. and you suffer the repercussions of it for generations. Right. So, right, right. Yeah. And, and that's ingrained since our earliest days of, you know, when Adam and Eve sin, they don't run to God, say, I've messed up. I'm sorry. They hide. Yeah. And that is, you know, we've, we've inherited that tendency of original sin of sin to run away. Like that mm-hmm. is the natural tendency. Whereas, and that's something I love about Therese is what she constantly says is, and even, let me just grab it real quick. The, the, the concluding words of her autobiography are, uh, it is not because God and his anticipating mercy has preserved my soul from mortal sin that I go to him with confidence and love. So what she's, I think she actually says it earlier. Da-da-da. Oh yeah. Uh, I feel it. Even though I had on my conscience, all the sins that can be committed, I would go my heart broken with sorrow and throw myself into Jesus's arms. And that's something she herself talks about all the time is she, um, because I, I would assume it probably happened in her convent that people were assuming, well, you're so trusting and loving of God because you haven't, he's preserved you from mortal sin. Right. But she herself is saying, nope. She, mm-hmm. she even, um, explained to her sister, like the, the, 
what is it? The the lesser one who is the most without desires and virtue is like the most fit for the little way. Hmm. So, and she herself even said like, I, I am imperfect. I will always be imperfect. Mm-hmm. But these little involuntary faults can't, it, it doesn't hurt God because like how can, and something she says is a child, a little child falls all the time. Mm-hmm. Doesn't offend the parent though. Like, so, and this child has to fall and learn not to do that again. Yeah, yeah. Granted, child might run off, but that shouldn't prevent the child from running back. And it's and it's completely in the spirit of the prodigal son. Yeah. You know, yeah. she she looked at that and said, oh, what did she say? Um, how eager you are to forgive the prodigal son, will you not be even more willing to forgive the child who's always with you? Mm. So, but just this constant trust in his mercy and calling that upon him because um, I love what Pope Francis said of, you know, it's not God who tires of forgiving us. It's we who tire of asking for forgiveness. Mm. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's such a good line. Because mm-hmm. I think, yeah, that's that just evokes so many um, images of, of people who, you know, are, are tired of like, oh, well, you know, I'm so, I'm a sinner. Why why ask for forgiveness? You know, right. like I've done this so many times. Why ask for forgiveness? I've, right. I've sinned too greatly. What's the point? Right. And that's what I think. Or that's why I think the the message of the prodigal son is even more, yeah, you know, real and more mm-hmm. needed because it, it's a recognition that it Jesus doesn't talk about the prodigal son, you know, feeding pigs and eating what they eat by accident. Exactly, it's, it's specifically to show how far he had fallen from grace, the lowest of the low. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, in fact, the the reason why this is on my mind is um, I'm actually preaching about the prodigal son on Sunday. Oh, right. Yeah, and uh, what I'm focusing on is, is God's lavishness that he bestows mm-hmm. upon the Son. Yeah, yeah. Um, because, so anyway, in the in reading it, one of the things that I had forgotten about is, is that the Son, when it, when it says uh, he comes to his senses, mm-hmm. he starts to think to himself, okay, I'll go back to my Father, and I say, you know, I've sinned against heaven and against you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your Son, uh, hire me on as a servant. Right. So that's his speech, that's, his, that's what he's ready to, like, tell his Father. So when he goes and his father sees him and he runs out and embraces him he starts to say father i've sinned against heaven and against you i'm no longer to be fit to be called your son the father cuts him off he doesn't let him finish he says no no no. bring bring a robe put it on his back put sandals on his feet put a ring on his finger yeah prepare the fat and cap like Mm -hmm. he doesn't even allow the son to get to the full like oh let me be your servant you know Mm -hmm. so that's to me that's such a beautiful um illustration of of how god is just thrilled when we repent and come back yeah yeah that it's yeah so anyway that's it's very much on my mind so coming back to 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 res yeah um let's talk about we we mentioned it a little bit in the vlog but let's talk about how she became your your patron saint what what kind of led you to her so when i was first the, the the saints have always been a big part of my spiritual life i remember someone pointed that out to me a few months ago of like oh well so and so this is big for this like you love the saints like and all that and i haven't really realized that but i was like yeah that is true. Uh, Therese in particular, though, and she was she's always kind of been there uh, since the start. I She was one of the first saints I really kind of learned about. Um, so I was just thinking, okay, well, she, you know, she's there. But I, I definitely fell into for a long time of, I don't really relate to her, though, because mm. she's so holy, she's so good, she's so, you know, all these things. But she, um, she is known as a stalker. Which she (laughs) absolutely is because she just (laughs) follows everybody. And 
yes, she is one of the most popular saints of the church, but it kind of seems like wherever you go, there's a statue, there's a picture of her, there's something. And she really is this remarkable figure because, like, if you look at photographs of her, she has these very arresting eyes, and mm-hmm. she definitely catches your attention. Mm-hmm. And, but it wasn't until I actually read Story of a Soul when I was 19 that I really understood what she was to me and what I was to her. Mm-hmm. So, I when I finally read it, I was just, because I, I was, I, I had heard, um, it was actually Bishop Barron saying, you know, he said, first time I read it, I could, he was saying as a post-Freudian, I could see neuroses and depressions mm. and didn't really, it was too childish, blah, blah, blah. But he said when he went back to it, he absolutely loved it. And he, he is a, he is a devotee of Therese as well. So I was, I was kind of expecting that, eh, not really for me, but mm. you know, mm-hmm. but when I read it, I was shocked how much I related to her. I felt, I was, I was like, why are we the same person? Mm. And how are we the same person? Because come, you know, she was this very sheltered child. Both of her parents are canonized saints. All of her sisters became nuns, whereas, like, I'm this convert-only child who is still out in the world in a very liberal university, all these things. But I was absolutely shocked how similar I was to her. And just everything she said sent me at peace. Hmm. And just her perspective change has been so good for me. And I have that all the time where if I'm confused, discouraged, I look at Story of the Soul, and she, there's always something in there that says... Hmm. God is merciful, God is this, you only have to do, you know, this, this, or this. Um, but then under understanding how, and, and this is really a tremendous blessing from God of just understanding how I had specifically been entrusted to her to follow her. Mm-hmm. And I've even had like images where I'm praying where I've literally been sitting at her feet and she's the one, she is the one through whom Jesus teaches me. Mm-hmm. Not everyone has has that, I've come to realize. And I've realized what an extraordinary blessing that is. Mm. But just seeing how, really, as Paul says, you know, imitate me as I imitate Christ. For me, yeah. that's, Therese is really, like, my teacher, my master, my my sister, my spiritual mother, all these things. Yeah. And, yeah, so, so that imagery, and, and her famous thing that she said is, I will let fall a shower of roses. So the thing that she does is she sends roses. Mm-hmm. So if you pray in a vineyard or, or if you ask, you know, if you have a decision, you'll say, okay, send me a, like a red rose for this or a purple rose for that. And she will answer. And she does, she comes to aid very fast. Mm. But that's why she's always portrayed with, very often, she'll just be, she'll be portrayed holding a crucifix and roses in her hand. Mm. Um, but what she, what she talked about is, something she rather lamented was, Jesus, you've taught me all these things. Why don't all souls know this? Why don't all little souls know this? I want what did she say? I want you to choose a legion of little souls, but seeing how I myself was of that legion and mm-hmm. how I'd been entrusted essentially to her generalship. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and research, continuing to follow her, read more of her stuff. It's just, it's really, I feel just deep in our relationship. Mm-hmm. And that to me is one of the most beautiful things about the communion of saints is seeing how just because their exile has ended, they're now in heaven they're still part of the church yeah. and they're still helping us out. Yeah. And she provides again, that model, that guidance for me, showing me how I am to, yeah. to follow what I'm to do, all these things. So would you characterize it then? Uh, another way of characterizing a relationship would be a discipling relationship. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Cause like, as you were talking about it, like, especially with Paul saying, you know, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Yeah. Um, I, I can't help but think about the people in my own life that I've mm-hmm. looked to for yeah. discipleship. And yeah. 
uh, one of the biggest ones is is a guy named Marco Ombres, mm-hmm. um, who, you know, he he became a very close friend and, and pastor of mine. But he became my mentor. He became my uh, supervisor and my mm-hmm. youth ministry and internship and stuff like that. And every time I think about um, or people ask me like, you know, where where do you see Jesus at work in mm-hmm. in your life? And I often tell them stories of Marco because mm-hmm. I, I look to him and I see where he has emulated Christ in my yeah. life, you know? Yeah. So I think it, it's it's kind of a similar thing with the communion of saints where you look at these people Absolutely. and you look at their work, you look at what they have to say and just like, actually, yeah, that, that speaks to where I'm at. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, who doesn't love the story of St. Augustine, you know, yeah. being a, a, um, a heathen, a heathen um, and then, you know, coming to the Lord or... Mm-hmm. Uh, say Mary of Egypt yeah. or you know somebody who these two people especially Mary and, and Augustine you know being so far right. but then you have somebody like Therese of Lisieux who has been cloistered her whole life right mm-hmm. um, and still have that same depth of relationship with Christ so I yeah. think it's an important thing to note that both ends of the spectrum can experience yeah. this deep rich relationship with, with Jesus right right and, and speaking of that something, something she talked about was you know as Jesus tells us you know whoever's forgiven more loves more Mm -hmm. and she I don't remember she said like I she's almost kind of saying like I am determined to show that I love more even though I've never committed mortal sin Mm -hmm. and this is what she explains it to be is that um, if you imagine um, a child is walking on a road and he trips falls over like on a rock or something and hurts himself his father comes and bandages him Mm -hmm. his father saved him his father's healed him Mm -hmm. say that father with his son not knowing has moved those rocks out of the way He's still been forgiven. He's still been saved. Mm -hmm. And she's saying, that's what God has done for me. And he did this because he knew if I fell. She says this all the time. If God did not keep such close, like keep me so close, I would have been lost forever so easily. Mm. She talks about the vanity, center of attention, all these. They were put to shame so fast for her. Mm. And she herself acknowledges it of... I mean, her her confessor even told her, thank God he kept you so close because you easily have become would have become a little demon. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. So she went from... The, the 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 line was very thin between little saint and little demon for her. Oh, yeah. But thankfully, she was born... Like, God just saying, okay, you're going to be born into this extremely pious family. Yeah. Your parents are going to be saints. Yeah. All of your sisters will be nuns. So, for the record, uh, who are her parents? Louis and Zelie Martin. Okay. So they were, they were actually the first couple of couple to be canonized as a couple oh nice okay and that was just a few years ago but they they really are remarkable people just because louis had tried both of them had tried to enter religious life actually and both were rejected Hmm. so louis became a watchmaker zelly became uh involved in lace work okay and they kind of by chance met and got married um they had nine children four of them four of them died young sadly okay but the five surviving daughters as i said all became nuns and I joke around with pretty much the whole family is going to be canonized, but I would not be surprised in the slightest right. because one of her <laughs> sisters, the only one who didn't go into the Carmelite convent, her cause was actually just opened. Okay. And I think she's, so her sister Leone, who became um, a visitation, uh, visin, and the order of the visitation is her order. <laughs> I can never say like what their actually thing is, but her, she's called the, um, she, she failed at religious life three times. Huh. She went in, went out, went in, went out, went in, went out. Fourth time she went in, she finally succeeded. Okay. And she was really one of Therese's first disciples. Okay. Of don't ever get discouraged. Trust. 
you know, keep trying. And now they're investigating her for sainthood, mm-hmm. which I think is especially remarkable because you have this comparison of, oh, Therese is so perfect, so wonderful, compared to Leone, where it's like, she was the difficult child. She was, mm-hmm. like, and if you notice, kind of in Story of the Soul, she's sort of the least mentioned. Mm-hmm. You know, she's all over her older sisters, Pauline and Marie and Celine, who was the one closest in age to her, they were absolutely inseparable, but Leone's only kind of mentioned if, so she's kind of the forgotten sister. Right. But now God in his mercy is saying, now look at this little one mm. who is, so, mm. but just seeing how, and something Therese talks about is love can only be satisfied when it goes to the lowest point. You know, grace mm. is like water goes to the lowest point. Mm. And you know, Jesus being born to a humble peasant girl growing up, in Nazareth, of mm. all places, like the mm-hmm. hood of yeah, yeah. <laughs> of the the Holy Land. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. that wow. So it sounds like you know, Therese of Lisieux is so much more impactful, especially because, like I, I mentioned earlier, about the connection with Waldenstrom and covenant history mm-hmm. and stuff like that, and that I know has been very deeply impactful for me. So yeah. it sounds to me like I need to read Story of a Soul. <laughs> no, I would, ask, I would recommend it for everybody. <laughs> okay. Like, I, yeah, um, again, very easy to read. Just the perspective change, I think, is the biggest thing. Okay. And you realize all sorts of stuff, and there's so much you don't expect in there, like her her trial of faith, honestly. Because mm-hmm. she, so she died of tuberculosis. Okay. Which, horrible death. Yeah. Like, Every time I read, it's been called her passion, uh-huh. and I would absolutely say that's fair. Mm. But just seeing how much she suffered is mm. it, and it scares me every time I read it. Mm. Um, but at the same time, she was going through a dark night of the soul because mm. she talks about the first time she spat up blood, she was just filled with joy. She's like, "I'm gonna go to heaven." Mm. I'm, you know, she just talks about how like, oh, the exile's almost over. Like Jesus is calling me home. All these things. But then she says, um, I actually just read, reread it yesterday, but she, she said she was just so full of living faith, the consolation of faith. She said, I couldn't believe that people genuinely didn't believe. Mm-hmm. I thought that they were speaking against their own convictions. And what she says is, Jesus gave me to know there were people who by abuse of grace had completely lost their faith. Mm-hmm. And she was plunged into that darkness mm. and she's she said it feels like there's nothing mm-hmm. it and she's this trial lasted until she died so that was like about a year and a half Jeez. so and, and it's kind of scary to read about because she um she let me see if i can find it really quick but she just says um one second um right here uh, when I sing of the happiness of heaven and of the eternal possession of God, I feel no joy in this, for I simply sin- for I sing simply what I want to believe. So, not that she ever denied the existence of heaven, but she really was put through. She really grew in the virtue of true faith, because faith is not what we feel, not what we see, but what we trust to be there without any evidence. Right. And she was saying, for the sake of sinners all joy, all consolation has been taken from me. But if one sinner could be saved for that, totally worth it. Mm. So that I feel makes her extremely relatable. And there are certain other things that make her, I think, incredibly relatable where you're like, what? And yeah. 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 So there's, there's something 
something to be found in her. Yeah. It's something to be found in every saint, really. Yeah. And I think that's why I wanted to to end up with this series because mm-hmm. I I think my my knowledge of the saints is very limited yeah. like, compar- comparatively. <laughs> um, but in the in the study that I have done of, you know, Francis of Assisi or mm-hmm. Augustine of Hippo, um, the way they go about living their lives and the way it, it, it basically shows how to take the gospel and, and live it out. You yeah, know? exactly. And I think that that's really been beneficial to me because, again, um, I know we've talked about this multiple times, but, but Augustine especially, with yeah. how far he was from God and then yeah. came, coming back. Like, yeah. To me, there's something about how powerful the gospel message is and how transformative it is yeah. in the lives of the saints. And we have the lives of the saints as the examples. Exactly. Um, so Exactly. Cool. Um, so one final question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you said she was 24? 24. When she died? 24. Okay. How long had she uh, been in the convent for? Nine years. Nine years. So she, she entered when she was 15 after... Um, she had like a very deep conversion when she was just before she turned 14 okay. of she because so her mother died when she was only four okay and she said that she just became she, extremely moody extremely sensitive um just a very immature child for many many years hmm. and she endured all sorts of things she had um this very bizarre sickness when she was about 10 or 11 and it wasn't until she had a miraculous cure that she was freed from it. She struggled with scrupulosity, just all sorts of things. And she just was just overwhelmingly sad. Hmm. But that wasn't until on Christmas, Jesus just completely transformed her heart, really just made her grow up. Hmm. You know, she got, it, it, and it wasn't even her doing. She talks about what I wasn't able to do in 10 years, Jesus did in an instant yeah. of maturing her into this young woman. And she was, this happened on Christmas morning, right after midnight mass. And she was determined to enter the convent a year later. Mm. Didn't quite happen. It was a year and a few months, but right. you know, she was saying, I want to enter Carmel at 15. And everyone's saying, are you sure? Like, cause her father was in his sixties by this point, mm. And he had actually just had the first of a few strokes and people, uh, initially the superior said, you can't enter till you're 21. Right. So, and even her sisters who are already in the convent were saying, are you sure? Like, you're way too young. There's, right. there's no way this can happen just yet. But she kept persisting, kept persisting, kept persi- persisting. But she was, she was just saying, no, this is what God's calling me to do. Mm-hmm. And even after that encounter with Pope Leo Thirteenth, she, she talks about, I was, I was sad that I didn't have an answer and it seemed like it wouldn't happen, but I knew I had done everything I was supposed to do. So I was at mm-hmm. peace. So then it was just a matter of, of waiting, yeah, and and, it, and I remember also reading in Saint Faustina's diary. She talks about that. She's like, "All right, Jesus, I've done what you asked me to do. Now you do your part." <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah. th- there yeah. there is this extent that God calls us to do X amount, and then He does the rest, which is really right the most of it. So. Right, and that I mean that just brings up to mind like sometimes we're called just to bring five loaves of bread and two fish. Exactly, you know, exactly. So, and that's pretty much what Therese herself had to bring. Mm-hmm. She was like. I can offer you rose petals. Right. That's pretty much it. Right, right. Fascinating. Well, awesome. Thank you, Jake. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening in to our second podcast. Um, this is Thursday's Theology, in case you, you know, didn't know that at the time. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, thank you for joining us this week. And, uh, yeah, check out the podcasts. I'll link to that down below. But uh, Or the vlog, I should say. 
I will link to the vlog episodes down below. Uh, thanks for joining us once again, and uh, remember, theology doesn't always have to be difficult. It is simply the study of who God is. Take care. We'll see you next time.